Hey, everybody. Come on over here. It's the Northern Miner Podcast. Welcome to episode 109 of the Northern Miner podcast. I'm your host, John Cumming, editor-in-chief of the Northern Miner. This episode, we're going to go deep into the world of diamonds and diamond mining. We just wrapped up our Canadian Mining Symposium at the Royal York in Toronto here uh, earlier in the week, and I got some cutting-edge stuff here. Uh, I just want to turn it around quickly to get it in your hands, and um what we have is a uh, supply and demand analysis from Paul Zimniski. He's a New York City-based uh, independent diamond analyst and consultant, and he goes into the um, supply and demand fundamentals, and they look really good. So, uh, it's, you know, the diamond world has been kind of flat for many years, but uh, the outlook is finally uh, really brightening, especially supply is so constrained, and uh, with the boom, especially in China and the U.S., luxury goods are responding very well on the demand side. We then switch over to two consultants from SRK, both based in Vancouver. The first is Casey Hetman. He's a geologist, and we'll go into uh, some of the problems uh, people run into uh, while exploring for and uh, proving up diamond deposits. And then we switch over to Jarek Jakubek. He's an uh, engineer, and he will talk about the uh, mining aspect and processing of diamonds, especially the global transition to underground mining as the open pits are depleted worldwide. This podcast is brought to you by the Grosso Group, which is led by entrepreneur Joe Grosso. They're based in Vancouver. They have three publicly traded companies, uh, mostly looking around uh, Argentina for mineral resources. We have Golden Arrow Resources, their, their uh, precious metals, Argentina Lithium and Energy, uh, lithium up in the northwest of Argentina, and we have Blue Sky Uranium. And for more information on those three companies, go to grossogroup.com, their website, and that will lead you to links to all three companies. Our second sponsor is the Yukon Mining Alliance. They're a group of 17 companies uh, exploring for and developing and mining uh, mineral projects in the Yukon. If you want more information on the group, you can go to yukonminingalliance.ca, and their Twitter feed is also excellent. Check them out at at investyukon. And they're going to have their media tour, um, I think, later next week. And we're, we're going to have Richard Quarisa uh, take the tour there. It's a quite in-depth tour of touring at least a dozen projects. And there's a mineral conference up there. So uh, we're bound to get uh, more news uh, firsthand from the Yukon. Now, we have so much diamond content here. I'm not going to go deeply into the um, commodity news this week. But let me just give a little uh, checkup on the prices because there's been a huge slump in commodity in the commodity sector. Uh, you've had the interest rate hike in the U.S., strongest dollar, and it's just flattened um, commodities pretty much across the board. We've got gold at 1281. It's now at a six-month low. It dropped uh, like 25 bucks on Friday. Silver is at 1656. Platinum is at 886. Palladium 982. 
Over in the base metals, copper's hanging in there, but it did drop as well. It's at 318. Nickel is at 686. Aluminum, 99 cents a pound. Zinc, $1.42. Lead, $1.08. And uranium at 23.40 a pound, U308. And you've got the uh, oil prices have declined quite a bit. You've got in the futures market, you've got the West Texas Intermediate at 64.27. And remember, it was above 70 just in late May there. And then Brent futures are at $73. Just a quick run through the news. We've got, of course, on, on Monday, we had uh, U.S. President Trump meeting with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, and then the two vowing to denuclearize the Korean Peninsula. So huge news there. And in the long term, very bullish for uh, base metals in particular if they rebuild North Korea in the decades to come. Lots going on in mining, uh, especially with new investments in mine extensions. You've got Valet. They're going to go underground at Voices Bay, a $2 billion investment. And then you, they had a side deal with uh, Cobalt 27 and Silver Wheaton for their uh, Cobalt stream to help finance that project. South 32 is going to bid for Arizona mining, $1.3 billion. BHP Billiton is investing $2.9 billion to expand their south flank iron ore project in Western Australia. So that'll extend mine life by 25 years. And then Nevsun has extended the Bisha mine life in Africa. And then Kinross is going ahead with an expansion of the Fort Knox Gilmore uh, project that extends mine life, or yeah, I guess the extraction to 2030. That would add six years of mining. So let's take a break, and then we'll jump right into Paul Zimniski with his analysis of the diamond market. And then um, you'll hear Anthony Vaccaro will come on, introducing our two uh, SRK consultants. All right, so without further ado, all the way in from uh, New York City, we have an analyst, metals commentator, or diamonds commentator that I'm sure you're all familiar with, Paul Zimniski. In the current, in the launch of the Diamonds in Canada magazine, which all of you have in front of you, Paul has a, an excellent contribution there. I encourage everyone to read it. Paul has been 10 years uh, in the diamond industry. He's been a mining analyst. Uh, he was an arbitrage trader, consultant, interestingly, an ETF developer. He brought the, uh, the first ETF to market that was focused on diamonds uh, and mining equipment. So uh, pretty uh, excellent resume and uh, interesting perspective that he brings. And he's a contributing editor to, uh, to many of the, the mining industry's leading publications. Of course, the biggest one being Diamonds in Canada and the Northern Miner. So, uh, Paul, please come on up. Thank you for having me. I think uh, the turnout here says a lot. Um, I'm, I'm pretty excited to see so many people. I think this is a sign of, uh, you know, improving sentiment in the space. Um, I, I think this is uh, this is great. So I just have a, a few slides. I think I have like 10 slides here. We'll just go through um, some fundamental backdrops in the industry, some supply demand, um, and then at the end, I'll give you my opinion on the De Beers release last week. Um, they're going to be entering the lab-created diamond uh, space, which uh, pretty big news. So just to provide a backdrop here, um, this is a 10-year rough diamond price. It's a proprietary index I put together. It's, it aims to, to be a like-for-like -like representation of global rough diamond prices tied to global run of mine. I'd say half the data is 
public, half of it's private. And I try to track, you know, rough diamond price change on a weekly basis. Here's about 10 years of data. You can kind of see, it's a pretty good picture of what's been going on here. Global financial crisis hits. Supply comes in quite substantially. In the background, 2008, 2009, 2010, the industry started to see a pretty significant uptick in demand from China. The first generation in China began giving diamond engagement rings. You know, with the liberalization of the economy, the industry saw a significant influx of, of new demand from China. So after the supply came in, you know, 2009, the demand actually was, was relatively resilient. And that's why we saw that pretty significant price increase to mid-2011. Right around that time, you know, supply was starting to ramp up. The manufacturers in India began speculating on further price rises. So 2011, uh, second half, the industry started to see uh, some oversupply, came in off the high. And, the, you know, the last five years have been kind of, you know, relatively stable. It's been a, you know, a modest downward trajectory, but I kind of wish I put a trend line. But I think if you were to put a straight trend line in the chart, you'd see, I think we're finally breaking out of that, you know, that slight downward trend. And then on the right here, I just have, I try to break down some of the, you know, supply-demand factors here. I have more detail on that on uh, this slide here. So if you kind of break down between jewelry demand, diamond jewelry demand, and polished demand, this is kind of what it looks like. And then I try to give some you know, indications as to why we're maybe seeing you know, what we're seeing here. Again, this is cumulative. This is over the 10-year period. I have it in nominal and real terms. So we have seen you know, real appreciation across the board here. But when you look at like diamond jewelry in particular relative to global jewelry demand, it's underperformed a little bit. And that's because fine jewelry has lost some market share to fashion jewelry seeing that, you know, probably primarily in the U.S. And then when you look at just, you know, the polished diamond content of the diamond jewelry, the content per piece of jewelry has been declining. Um, and that's why you're seeing, you know, polish and demand uh, underperforming diamond jewelry demand. There isn't, a, you know, an exact correlation there. And um, then just kind of quickly going back to the top, I mean, ultimately what's going to drive demand, it's, it's highly correlated to global GDP. Um, U.S. is the biggest market, almost 50%. China's approaching 20%, India 8%. China and India, definitely the most exciting uh, growth markets, you know, growing middle-class consumer. The population in China and India is actually approaching China. It's like, I think India is probably the most exciting, going to be the most exciting uh, area of growth the next 10 years. And then looking just, you know, supply here, it's been kind of interesting. So if you look at supply in, tied to U.S. dollars, global diamond supply tied to U.S. dollars, there's been you know, a 30% increase in nominal, 14% real. Um, but if you look at average price per carat, in real terms, you know, it, it's up $91 in 2008 to 106 today is kind of what I estimate. You know, the reason for that is there has been real price growth. There has been a decline in volume, but the, the, diff, the net difference is there has been real price growth, even though it hasn't really felt like it. But again, we're talking about you know, from 2008. The last you know, five years looks a little bit different. And then also, you know, playing a factor, size and the quality of global uh, run of mine has improved. And that's because of it's, it Congo, production has decreased in Congo, it tends to be lower quality, rough. Argyle in Australia um, represents a, a smaller portion of global uh, production now, and that tends to be lower quality. So that's something else we're seeing. And then this is just, uh, this is the last 52 weeks. According to my index, we, we made a, a you know, new 52-week high, um, you know, within the last few weeks here. 
I mean, I think there's a real fundamental reason for this. I mean, global economies, you know, the, the best it's been, and since I've been, you know, in, in the financial industry, you know, sentiment out of China is great. Um, it, it's the best it's been in, 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 you know, since 2008. And just the overall, you know, global macro backdrop has been pretty good. Stock markets are, 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 are high pretty much everywhere. Um, so the, the sentiment's very important when you look at luxury. Um, and consumer sentiment's the highest it's been in quite some time. Uh, in the most important markets. And, and we saw that, I mean, Tiffany released results a couple weeks ago. It was fantastic. Like, it was, it was the best one-day move the stock has had in um, probably almost 10 years. Um, stocks at an all-time high. They raised guidance. They increased the dividend. Signet, the biggest jeweler in the U.S., um, they're restructuring. The stock's kind of had some difficulty as they're going through the restructuring, but they still beat on uh, relative to expectations. And uh, Signet, you know, the stock was up 20% last week. And again, that's the, you know, that's the largest pure play driller in the U.S. They have, you know, maybe a 15% market share, but it's a very, I think it's a very important proxy for jewelry demand, diamond demand. Um, you know, we're seeing some good things. Um, and then, you know, again, just looking at the last 52 weeks, supply. I mean, we're, we're seeing supply come in, um, you know, about 3% this year, I'm estimating. De Beers El Rosa represent, say, 60, 65% of global production. They've been reducing net inventories. Inventories are the lowest they've been in four years. And they're, they're producing pretty close to capacity. You know, I don't, I don't think we're going you know, we're, we're to see a significant uh, you know, uptick in supply anytime soon. I mean, there's no indication uh, you know, where that would come from. So, so right now, I mean, the, the backdrop looks pretty good. It's just it's going to depend on uh, the demand, and, and, and that's going to depend on the global economy. So if you look at the diamond mining stocks, in, in 2015, there was only five publicly traded standalone diamond miners. So it doesn't include Rio Tinto, it doesn't include De Beers, because they aren't, they're subsidiaries of larger companies. But out of the five, every single one of them paid dividends. And I used $250 million as the threshold U.S. But they were all profitable. They were all paying dividends. So I kind of see, you know, that that was based on 2014 prices when they are making those decisions. I kind of see that as a key level for rough prices where, you know, a lot of these companies really start to start generating some cash again. And that's, you know, that's, I'd say, 5 to 10% higher than we are now gets us back to that 2014 level. And we're still 15 to 20% off of the, the highs in 2011 where we saw that, that spike on that first chart. But, but again, I think we're pretty close to this, and I think the fundamental backdrop is pointing towards a, a picture that, uh, that, that this is uh, quite possible in, you know, in, the next, in the next few years. Um, and then just, again, looking at the universe, I, I put a little a line on the bottom there. Um, so if you look at globally, pure play diamond uh, mining companies that are at least $250 million in market cap, there's now, uh, there's now six companies. So it's a, pretty, it's a pretty tight, pretty small universe. Dominion was acquired last year, and... Mountain Province and, and Stornoy were added uh, to the universe. They uh, commenced uh, production last year. This is my, my supply forecast. I mean, it looks, it looks pretty good. Like, I think it's, it's, you can kind of get a little bit excited about this. There is a, a significantly long like, lead time with uh, new diamond projects. So you, I think you can look out with, with decent amount of confidence, you know, at least five years. And that's kind of what we're, what we're doing here. There's multiple products around the world that are going to be, you know, either depleting or closing completely. Argyle in Australia, the most significant. Um, you have alluvial projects, De Beers alluvial projects in Namibia. Um, they're going to be closing down the, over the next few years. You have Arosa's largest mine is uh, Jubilee. Production's coming in through natural depletion. Victor in Canada, De Beers mine. 
And there's really not any significant new supply coming on stream. El Rosa, the Russians, they have one uh, new mine that's going to commence commercial production towards the end of this year. Next calendar year will be the first full year of production, 1.8 million carats. But when you look at you know overall uh, picture here, it's uh, it's one of you know declining supply over the next five years. Um, you see the spike towards the end of the chart there. There's a new mine being developed in Angola called the Washi, potentially be quite significant. Um, up to maybe 10 million carats a year annual production. It's, it's a, a project owned by the Angolan government. Uh, Rosa, the Russians also have a piece of that project. It's kind of unclear at this point how big it actually is, when, can, uh, when production would commence. Um, I was talking to the Russians uh, a couple weeks ago, and they think it's going to be you know, maybe uh, further into the future than, than near into the future as far as first production. But I'm thinking you know, 2022, 2023, we may uh, you know, start to see incremental um, supply come on. Uh, and then in addition, if you look at Zimbabwe, the government there is running the Marenge mining project. They said they're going to be able to uh, increase production from about 2 million carats to about 10 million carats by 2023, 2024. And they actually have, um, they said they're going to kind of put money in the project. They put in 80 million bucks. So they're going to put another 300 million in from the government bank. Um, so they've kind of been doing what they said they were going to do. It's lower quality rough. The industry doesn't really like it. It's kind of tarnished. Um, they've had human rights issues with that project. So it's not as important to say uh, the mine in Angola. But other than that, there's not a whole lot of new supply coming on uh, stream the next five years. Looking at uh, just an overview of demand, I think this is a really interesting chart. I'd like to watch this. Chai Taofuk, it's the largest jeweler in greater China. Um, and this is new store openings. And when you look at you know, what drives demand for, for diamonds, it's new demand, new store openings. They have to you know, furnish inventory for a brand new store. And you could see like earlier in the, in the decade, you know, they were opening you know, 200, over 200 stores. When the Chinese economy slowed in 2015, you kind of saw that drop. And then there was kind of like a, a delayed tail effect 2016, 2017. But last year, this is uh, the 12 months ending March 31 of 2018. You can see new store, net new store openings are kind of back to where they were in 2014. I think that's really bullish. I'm excited to see that. They've indicated they're going to continue to open uh, stores at this pace this year. Um, again, China, you know, largest growing market. They're approaching 20%. I like to watch, if you want to watch like a figure, to, a proxy for Chinese diamond demand, look at, you know, look, look at a chart like this. I think it paints a pretty good picture. And then this is just uh, the, the bottom point there is just uh, so far what we've seen in 2018. Like I said, Tiffany looks good. Louis Vuitton, across the board, luxury's been doing uh, great in Q1. I mean, I, I think sentiment for luxury is probably the best it's been in quite some time, um, you know, Q1 2018. It doesn't even matter what, you know, you can look at any statistic, uh, China's government statistics, 7.9% increase in, in jewelry sales growth in Q1. Um, again, this all depends on, you know, global growth, though. I, I think you could say there's some consensus that economists expect the economy to slow 2019, 2020. It's probably going to ultimately depend on, you know, monetary policy. If we see Europe uh, and Japan kind of move to tighter policy, um, this could maybe play out a little bit quicker. Um, but uh, I, I think the expectation is that growth is going to slow. Not that we're going to see negative growth, but uh, growth is going to slow when you look at you know, the, macro, the macro picture. Um, and that definitely will affect uh, diamond demand. Uh, quickly, I just have a couple more slides here. Um, if I was to pick like three challenges for the industry, these are kind of what I would come up with. Uh, supply train, uh, supply uh, chain transparency, it's kind of been an issue for years now. Um, so I kind of listed what the problem is and what the industry is doing. 
I think the diamond industry is doing quite a good job. They're being quite proactive with regard to acknowledging these, you know, these challenges here. So, you know, as far as making the supply chain more transparent, industries like utilizing blockchain, other technologies, Lucara, obviously very active in this area as well. And, and, and this is important. I think it, it's, I think it paints a good picture, it paints like a positive image of maybe the industry doing something that's more innovative. You know, it's, it's high tech. There's, there's, I think, a lot of good buzz around this. And I think it, it makes sense fundamentally, but I think from a PR standpoint, it also is a good move by the industry. Probably the, the, you know, the biggest challenge for the industry right now is declining marriage rates. Um, legitimate concern. You know, millennials are spending less on luxury material. They'd rather travel. There's only so much you can do with this. You know, the Diamond Producers Association, it's the largest miners are kind of bounding together to raise money to return generic diamond marketing. It's the first time since the De Beers Diamond is a Forever campaign. They spent $80 million last year. It's going to continue to, uh, to, to ramp up. I think that's enough to move the needle. They're targeting millennials. They're targeting, you know, maybe couples that aren't going to get married but will still, uh, you know, live life together. And, and maybe purchase a you know a nice diamond, and then self-purchasing women is probably the you know the biggest biggest maybe growth area or opportunity uh, for the industry for as far as new demand. Um, so the industry is you know acknowledging this with the with with the DPA, and then lab-created diamonds. You know we got the news last week. Um, you know I don't think the beers wanted to get in the lab-created business. Um, I think it's, it's just a strategic move at this point. Um, there is legitimate concern that you know, lab-created diamonds would take market share away from natural. Industry's been aware of this, and I think it got to a point where De Beers basically said, you know, we have the capacity, we have the production capability. They have a subsidiary, subsidiary called Element 6. Um, people don't even really know they exist. They primarily sell to um, industrial customers. Um, you know, they stayed very far away from jewelry for obvious reasons, um, but they, they kind of dropped the bomb last week um, and said they're entering the space. They're going to, you know, produce the diamonds internally through Element 6, um, and they're going to sell it through this label called Lightbox. I think what they're doing is they're basically trying to just take control of the lab-created industry and steer it in a direction that differentiates it completely from natural. And I think they have, the, they have the marketing budget to do it. They have the production capacity to do it. And this is kind of how they're doing it. They're going to offer four sizes of diamonds, quarter carat, half carat, uh, three-quarter carat, and one carat. Price is going to go from you know, 200 to 800. Linear price increases. So they're basically doing a bunch of things that indicate why lab-created diamonds are not rare. Um, they aren't special versus natural. When you look at natural diamond pricing, the price exponentially goes up because they're exponentially rarer as you get larger in size. De Beers is basically just saying, you know, the size is going to be a simple multiplier um, here. Um, linear price increase. They're going to be available in three colors. Um, price is going to be the same across all three colors. Um, they're essentially turning this into, you know, fashion jewelry as much as they can. And I think they're doing it. It's, so when you look at the price, they're going to offer a one-carat solitaire for 800 bucks. Um, I mean, that's it's like 80% lower than you know the current market for lab-created diamond, like substantial. Like it's it's it's, it's very important. I think to get below that $1,000 for one carat, it kind of puts lab-created diamonds in the same categories like Voisinite or you know we call them diamond simulants. They're you know imitation diamonds that traded a you know a, a much different price point. And I think this puts lab-created diamonds in that category. So Is I think that the. I'm sorry. So yeah. So it's going to be $200 uh, for a, a quarter carat, 400 for a half carat, 600 for a three quarter carat, and a, um, and 800 for a one carat. Like it's really it's it's incredible. I, I just think it's it's it makes complete. 
I think it's like it's genius from the strategy standpoint. I mean, this is kind of what I like about this industry. I think it's really exciting. If this strategy works, you're going to see it in, you know, in case studies and textbooks. And it's really, really interesting how they did it. Even the way that they kind of were quiet about it and they kind of dropped the press release and they got a lot of publicity. It was kind of created a splash. People were talking about diamonds. Um, it was on local news. It, it got a lot of publicity. And this is what they're trying to do. They're trying to, again, take control of lab created and steer it the direction they want. And they, they have the power to do it. And they've done you know, similar things like this from a strategic standpoint in the, in the past. And I wouldn't bet against them. They're, and I guess just lastly here, um, you know, they aren't going to grade them because I think when you grade a diamond, it creates an illusion that you actually have something valuable or something that's, uh, again, going to differ depending on the quality and, and the price and the size. And they're basically saying they're all the same, they're all generic, they're all, um, they're, they're unlimited in supply. Um, so that's, uh, this is what I have. Uh, and we'll see how this plays out. But I think, it's, uh, I think it's the right move for the industry. I think it's good for all the, the whole natural industry. If I think if I was making this decision, I don't think I would have done anything differently. I think they just they executed from a strategy standpoint, uh, spot on. But kind of, kind of was excited to see that. Do we have time for a question, or are we? Uh, about the light box, do you see them? Uh, from what you know about the, the cost to generate these diamonds, is this a loss leader for the beers, or are they actually going to make money on this? I, I think they're going to make money. I, I, I wish they would spin it out because I would actually want to invest in it. Now, this is because again they have this Element Six company that has been a leading company in the R&D space for lab-created diamonds. Um, again, they've kept it very under the radar. They didn't want customers to think there's any kind of similarity between you know, what they're doing there and with the natural industry. Um, but they have the capability. And they wanted to develop the capability, so I think if they needed to do something like this, they could. They also are using the technology that they developed there to use for detection devices. Um, so again, they have the capability to do it. I think they actually can be profitable at these levels. Um, they have the scale, they have the marketing. It's, it's all marketing and branding, and uh, I think it's a great product. Like, it's, it's an interesting product. And the other second question was, on the very first slide, you talked sure. about the, the decreasing amounts of diamonds being used in fine jewelry. Yes. Um, do you know what's replacing diamonds in those cases? That's diamond content. So again, so say, you know, diamond content was, if you look at the value of the actual diamond in a piece of jewelry, it was maybe 40 to 50%. Now it's maybe you know, 40 to 45, maybe below 40%. So if you look at the percentage of the value of the diamond per piece of jewelry, so that's the one thing. Then if you just look at the jewelry store assortments, you're seeing more fashion, like jewelry that does not include diamonds versus, you know, jewelry that does include diamonds. And that, you know, ratio is also kind of moving away from... It's more, not necessarily, it's more just a price point thing. I think it's more a price point thing than anything else. Very good, okay. Excited to present, uh, to bring up our next presenters. We have two from the team of SRK. Uh, first, we have Jarek Jakobic. He's a corporate consultant, and he's heading up SRK Canada's diamond team. Um, and corporate, uh, he also leads the Vancouver Mining and Geology Group, and he has more than 30 years of experience focused on diamond, diamond mining and mass mining methods. And he joined SRK back in 1997. We also have uh, Casey Hetman, also a corporate consultant. 
And he's also a member of SRK's Diamond team, which is why he's here. Casey has over 20 years of experience focused on diamond deposit exploration and evaluation. And Casey has, a, has dedicated much of his career to the macroscopic and petrographic investigation of drill cores and mining exposures for the purposes of identifying and characterizing geological domains defined by different grades. So we should get a really strong kind of technical perspective here. So if I can get uh, Jarek and Casey, if you guys want. Thank you. Um, so you see um, two of us are presenting the talk this morning. We only have uh, 20 minutes. Um, Eric's going to focus on the mining component, and I'll focus on the geological component. And um, so we made the decisions. Sorry, when we made the decision to uh, present this morning, we had to think hard about what we could communicate in 20 minutes and make this of value to you. So it'd be easy to um, chat about successes. But um, our intention here is, is maybe to focus on uh, projects and, and uh, challenges and, and where people went wrong, because we find we often uh, learn much more and then move forward much more uh, when we have those mistakes. So we're, we're focusing on some more challenges within uh, geology resources and mines. So if we look at this map, this is a, is a summary of the operating mines around the world, showing a summary of the uh, cratons one of the gentlemen had highlighted. You know, we're looking at sort of uh, just under, uh, just over 6,000 kimberlites in the world. I believe we're going to find many, many more. I think there's lots of areas in the world where uh, I still think that um, we have significant amount of work to do to find new, new bodies. But coming from SRK, uh, we have, I, I believe, a unique perspective because we're actually involved in all these diamond projects around the world, our team. So we, we get to see you know, what works and what doesn't work. And, and what we're going to try and do, do today in a very short period of time, communicate uh, some things that uh, we need to be aware of when we're making business decisions and, and looking at technical information in reports, technical reports. And, so the first thing I'm going to talk about, Kimberlite, uh, geology and resource. And when I, when I look at my career and I look at um, significant advances in the community, I think what's important to appreciate is, is the science is always evolving. I think it's very dangerous when we think we know more than we do about what Kimberlites uh, are and how they're formed and the diamond distributions in there. I really think we have to progress outside of what we think we know about Kimberlites and diamonds. And if we look back at history, the most significant advances forward is when people actually jumped out of what was already established, okay? Um, and there's many, many examples of that. Argyle would be one. Uh, something closer to home would be uh, George's Fort Lacorn project, and I'm, I'm going to chat about that later on. And in order to, uh, for us to really understand a diamond deposit, we have to, uh, what I say is, step inside a volcano, okay? Which, which is probably a challenge for, for a lot of people to get their head into. There's an example right there of a beautiful little uh, octahedron from Bells Bank in um, just out of Kimberley. So what I'm saying, if, if I look at all the projects around the world, uh, from exploration to evaluation to mining, I think most of the business decisions are, are fundamentally made here when we're actually looking at microdiamonds. And there's Peter at the back, and, he, and he'll give us a little more information about this. So what we have to appreciate is the majority of the mines in the world are steep-sided pipes infilled with volcanoclastic kimberlite, okay? And that's formed by a variety of volcanoclastic processes. What we have to appreciate is that we have diverse emplacement processes and depositional processes that are responsible for distributing components, components include the diamonds, within that kimberlite. 
if we look at the um, kimberlite, let's say at Renard, and we compare that kimberlite to Fort Lacorn, and we compare that kimberlite to Acadie, each one of those rocks is different, and they're characterized by a different distribution of diamonds, and those are, uh, those are related to emplacement processes. So for us to really understand information, data, specifically microdiamonds, we actually have to understand the processes that were responsible for moving those fragments around, okay? So if we take a, a kimberlite magma as it's crystallized, it's got a variety of small, small little components, these little olivines, those would be comparable to the olivine phenocrysts uh, are comparable to the microdiamonds. When we have an eruption process like this, you can imagine that you have a lot of redistribution of those particles in space. And so the resulting rock has its diamond population changed now. And most of the technical reports I look at and most of the reporting, we never actually look at this in detail. And a lot of, I think, um, kimberlites are overlooked because they don't appreciate that we've redistributed those particles. So we have to be very, very careful in the early stages of projects uh, to take that into consideration. The other thing I want to comment is on mantle-derived indicator minerals. So these are the indicator minerals uh, that we see also included in diamonds. That's why we know they're significant. And I think a lot of focus is, in, particularly in the early stages, or poor des uh, decisions are made based on the information from these indicator minerals. So they're extremely powerful tool in assessing mantle sampling. Most of the kimberlites, actually, that I'm working on in the world have no indicator minerals. So you pick up a piece of rock and you'll process a ton of it. You won't see an indicator mineral. So you have to be very careful about that. And the only thing, uh, or the most important thing that I want you to appreciate here is that the highest indicator minerals from the deepest area of the diamond stability field reside in the kimberlite the longest. So what that means is, is they're actually sitting in that kimberlite, reacting with that kimberlite, and often they're taken out. Okay, so what I'm saying now is the first slide I was talking about microdiamonds, and lots of people don't incorporate or appreciate those processes that are impacting those microdiamonds. Now I'm telling you even the indicators we can actually take out a lot of those high-interest indicators. So the message I'm trying to communicate to you is that I think a lot of kimberlites are brushed over. You know, we have to take a, a, a more careful look at some of them. So the last thing, uh, or one of the last things I want to talk about is dr drilling and sampling. And obviously this is again where we, we, we decide on whether or not we're going to spend more money or, or determine whether or not we have a resource uh, or if it's potentially economic. But some of the biggest problems are, are obviously too few holes and un unrepresentative geology. Okay, so there's many, many projects that I can chat around, uh, about around the world where we've made these mistakes. But the other one that I think is just as bad is too many holes and no budget for sampling or investigation. Many, many projects I go to, they've done great jobs, a great job with the drilling. And I, I go to the site and there's drill cores that are sitting in a warehouse for 15 years that haven't been touched, no microdiamonds, no mineral chemistry, no petrography. So we've got to care, be very careful that we have a, a balance between the number of holes and doing good work on that because that is a, a, an investment in the actual sort of project. And the last point I want to make here is spatially unrepresentative drilling and sampling. I believe this is the greatest opportunity. So what I'm saying is there's a lot of kimberlites that have been discovered out there that I think that were poorly drilled and poorly investigated, and we can see this around the world, where people are taking these projects that are fundamentally dead dogs and generating resources out of them. So I just chose two very quickly here. This is uh, uh, a nice little stone here. I'm not sure if you guys saw this in the press. This is from Maya Mine. This project was known for 60 years. This area produces some of the largest diamonds in the world in the alluvial uh, mines around. So this is the first day of bulk sampling where they actually uh, recovered this... Um, 
inclusion-free type 2A 476 carat stone, first day of bulk sampling. Uh, Graf uh, purchased that stone for around $10 million. Okay? So that had been drilled. Many people had looked at that project, but very few people appreciated the significance of, of that geology there and the potential there. Another one I just want to uh, raise your attention or, or focus on is um, the Kennedy Diamonds or Mountain Province Kelvin Kimberlite. That's another one. Okay? Many people uh, looked at that and, and, and drilled it, and again, they didn't fully appreciate what actually was sitting there. So that's a resource there of now just under a billion dollars. Okay? Last statement before Yerick starts is um, a lot of our, our business decisions, again, are made in early stages. We're looking at microdiamond parcels, we're looking at mineral chemistry, and we're looking at petrography. But, but it's been my experience, until we actually get a macrodiamond parcel on, 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 the, on the table, and we can actually look at those goods that we're actually going to take to market, we actually really don't know what the potential of that kimberlite is. And I think the best, this is Victor, okay, that's the, the stones after our bulk sample that we created, um, uh, drilled off uh, pre, I think, 2003 or something like that. So very quickly, that's 243 carats. You look at that parcel and you know that is a significant project right away. There's no doubt about that, you know. Um, another one, a good example, again, what I had mentioned, Fort Lacorn is another one. Again, so that project, years were spent doing a little bit of drilling, a little bit of bulk sampling, mineral chemistry, petrography, but we really actually didn't know what the potential of that project was until actually Shore went underground and actually got a, a package of macro diamonds on the table and then elevated that project to a whole different level. So I really think that the, the, the macro diamond parcel is significant and many, many kimberlites in the world, we haven't even touched this process yet. So I think there's a lot of hidden value in those old deposits that we need to go back to. And the last thing, I think when I, when I travel around the world, I go to the, uh, different mines and, and exploration sites, Although this is not geological, I think the actual um, people are the difference between whether or not you have a successful project or not, you know. You get guys uh, like this gentleman here, he believes in this project and he, and, and, and he works hard and uh, they're successful. So not only do you have to have the right guys on site that believe in the project and are optimistic and technically savvy on the project, but we all know of projects that are great, that are dead dogs, and they're dead dogs because they haven't embraced the local community around them. So the projects that I see it really moving forward, you have the right guys on the site as well as the guys that can actually sort of engage the community. Then you really see those projects moving forward. Thanks. I'm going to hand that over to Eric now. Yeah, thanks, Casey. And thank you very much for giving me time and opportunity here. When we this year discussed with Casey, New Diamond Mining Group, in uh, SRK, it was actually about 20 years in making. We both coming from uh, De Beers environment. I was for a number of years responsible for Botswana mines. And it always strikes me that those consultancies are very siloed, that you have either petrographers or geologists, and you have a mining engineers without petrographer. And what I find out that it's quite important to, to actually have that holistic approach right from the beginning and understand the resource and understand the mining and understand the mine closure. And as Casey said, the, the people are not least important because that they're going to make it happen. As Casey showed, number of localities where diamonds are occurring, but there is a significant amount of mines as well in comparison to other commodities. We're not, we're not falling much behind. 
why I'm saying it, that there is a significant body of knowledge and experience uh, in the diamond industry, mining diamonds. The number of, number of methods which, uh, which diamonds are mined, but primarily, and especially relevant in Canada, those primary deposits uh, are pipes and, in some extent, sheets and dikes. And it will be interesting to see if we progress into alluvials, probably not into the marines, but that is open book. I just put a rough proportion of 2017. If you compare, I had a similar talk a couple of years ago. The underground mining was about half what, we, what we've seen today. That's an that's a important trend because uh, as the open pits are coming to end of the life, I would guess about 75% of the projects have some sort of plans to go underground. So in that 10 minutes, which is very difficult to squeeze complex uh, uh, diamond mining message, I want to focus a little bit on underground mining because they do require more investment and they produce less money from that investment than open pits and not many people realizes that the underground mining is completely different beast. It is completely different set of mines and many, many, many more challenges. When I look at the kimberlite pipes mined by underground mining in the current and past, it's about 25, give a take of them. What's important that nine had very serious challenges and too close prematurely one of them in Canada, and it's a question if we ever reopen those. Why? Mainly because selecting suboptimal mining method, which didn't reflect the context of the deposit. Poor understanding of geology, hydrogeology conditions. Uh, mine design was either flawed or optimistic assumptions, and it is my past 30 years being in mining and I'm not certainly involved with lots of promotional talks and conferences. There is a almost universal, through the mining industry, almost universal optimism, especially on the new projects. What are you going to achieve and expect? And there was a number of papers written, how many feasibility studies delivered on promise and how many fell short and how many actually were wrong. The other aspect is poor operational practices and difficulties in mining industry in general and specifically in diamond underground mining. And I'll show you why, some of those reasons. There was a number of mining methods tested and developed, about 25, I count last time, a variety of underground mining methods which were developed and implemented throughout the world. South Africa, Canada, Russia, Australia, China, Sierra Leone, and Botswana recently entered a league of underground diamond miners. If you look at uh, Canada, they all except one Snap Lake started as open pit. And it's quite interesting, actually, two underground mines which fell short of promise and closed prematurely and are on care and maintenance were underground mines without open pit. And that gives you also something, some clues that certainty in those studies, how the mine will perform, 
based on a drill call only is actually very risky business. You see it from, uh, from other mining ventures which goes underground without any underground exposure. They are really heading for major challenges. In Canada in particular, because we do have most of the diamond mines with very good country rock, one particular mining method which was very successful is that sublevel retreat. And we borrowed that in end of 1990s when Ekati was looking at uh, first underground mines, uh, Koala North. We borrowed it from DBS, from Finch Mine, which is open benching, and on quite significant scale introduced that method. It was tested at Ekati, and eventually three mines, three pipes were mined by this method. Then Diavik re-evaluated their business case and dropped $120 per ton rock mining down to about 40 and implemented on their 154 those uh, open benching method sublevel retreat as well. I want to mention something about dikes and sheets because they coming into the project more numerous. While there was about 20, 25 steeply dipping dikes mine, mainly in South Africa, uh, recently in Sierra Leone, there was one attempt to mine the shallow dipping one, Snap Lake. The problem with dikes and sheets is that those are two-dimensional ore bodies, and they need much larger proportion of drill holes per ton of material defined. I'm almost concerned that, in fact, dikes and sheets is very, very difficult to put on the reserves in 43101. One has to develop the system where you evaluate dikes and sheet as you progress mining, maybe with a couple of years inventory. I was involved in the early days of Snap Lake and uh, had the luxury just to came from Guanyamo Diamonds where they were all exposed. And I was told that it's a sheet of plywood and it was not quite in reality. The other characteristic of underground mining that you have decreased drill hole coverage and as we know with mainly pipes, we're really looking at the steeply dipping ore bodies with steeply dipping drilling. So the error is increasing with every drill hole, not only deviation, but the survey error. I think Diavik did a lovely study on, on that aspect, evaluating all the techniques. If you just plot uh, maybe one degree error per 100 meters, you will get ellipsoid of uncertainty down at four, five, six hundred meters where you want to implement the underground mine. There is a increasing pipe complexity often, and it's one of the paper from Roger Clements long time ago, and it, it's not that different in case of Canadian pipes going down. So you have increasing mining difficulties and, and hence cost. So with underground mining, we have to make sure that the project use the realistic assumption. It's not a dream, but reality. Underground mining, two key components which are really impacting potential safety is stability and madrashis. Madrashis are specific to kimberlites because most of the underground mining is open to surface, hence all the water, snow, etc., enters the mine. And the kimberlite is such nature that uh, often disintegrate with those components. And this is my only flashy 
things. We'll see if we, if we can get it working, but I don't see any, oops. No, that's a small video from the BS which shows the madrash in action. That's the only video, in fact, of madrashis. Canada is not saved from madrashis. On a positive note, madrashis, if they properly studied and mine is designed for them, can be handled safely. But this was expected a uh, long time ago uh, in uh, Kalinam, and uh, they installed uh, the cameras and, and captured that phenomena. Lastly, diamond breakage. It's a part of the, of the mining, and it certainly erodes the value significantly. And it always amazes me that if we go from geology to mining to processing, that geologists will give us a resource with the value of diamonds to the decimal points, $92.76 per carat. Then we'll give it to miners and they'll say, well, we're going to mine it with a mining method which will cost us 30 to $50 a ton. And there is a range. And then we damage of them and we, we easily slice, especially from coarse distribution diamonds, significant portion of the value. And the damage occurs in in first place in the geological processes, and it's actually quite amazing that some of those stones survived that whole journey from the 600 meters, 600 kilometers depth to the surface, go through the volcanic events, and still uh, be able to be mined. But there is a recently big move to address the diamond breakage. Where we're getting lots of traction is in processing and recoveries, and there is about 20, 30 years of research. I was part of that with the BS, uh, look at the Alarosa, what they do, and, and simple solutions such as material movement through the plant, etc., helps a lot. But most recently, that large stone recovery, which were implemented and are currently purchased by a number of companies, should really increase that value of our product in the very end of that mining geology pipeline. Where we still don't uh, appreciate is that there is that middle process, which is the mining. If you imagine we're drilling the drill holes into the rock and then full, pump them full of explosive and blast them, and you can imagine that the diamonds in the vicinity of those uh, blast holes, what, what will happen to them. This is, of course, nothing new. All the companies were looking at the means to decrease it. There is a picture I took in 1994 in, I think it was Udachnaya with the bucket wheel excavator trying to get the handle on diamond breakage. There is a picture from uh, one of the pit in uh, Tekati where they used the road cutter. A wonderful product straight to the plant, but unfortunately, none of those make it to the practical mining sense. You know, there is a number of issues with when those hits, the granite inclusions, uh, contact zones, you name it. So there is a still uh, quite an opportunity to develop something better than that uh, primitive blasting and destroying some of the diamond in that process. But what's, what I find out over the years is really uh, those key project drivers, and they could be different and they are different for every deposit. For some of them, could be diamond breakage. For small distribution, could be slope angles or a processing plant. It's important for each project to really identify it, and then we can have a better decision. 
Identifying is not just uh, qualifying them, but somehow quantifying the impact on your project. It's not good enough just to say plus minus 10% cost because they are skewed in uh, completely different manners for each project. As you see, change in grade is probably for this particular, the most important one. Capital expenditure does not have much upside potential. You can, you can have upside potential in operating cost, etc., etc. So it's important to really look at it uh, holistically at the whole mining project. In conclusion, I always found that better understanding of geology always pays off. It will decrease the risk of failures, especially when you start expanding that uh, resource down into underground mining. And fundamental research shouldn't be viewed as a cost. It is really an investment which you can capitalize later. For geologists, the mining, mine design process can start right with the first hole. You usually have enough knowledge of the context of water, of country rock, uh, how the terrain looks like, that you can start narrowing down that mining process. Mining on paper is fast, but must, must have a realistic foundation. Just taking off-shelf design because it works in Botswana or, or Timbuktu is not good enough. One really has to have that uh, realistic foundation and benchmarking is certainly one of the good, uh, good sources of that information. So that's about it, what I had on the mining. Thank you. And that about does it for this week's episode. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.